This morning, uh, I'm continuing to look at some of the core values and teaching of this movement of God that we call the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I say that uh, because that is a movement of God because we really didn't become a denomination until the IRS forced us to some years back uh, in order to maintain uh, tax-exempt status as a 501c3 organization. We kind of boxed into that, but for, uh, my goodness, 80 years at least of the Christian Missionary Alliance, we were essentially kind of a movement, uh, a group of people coming together oriented around a common theme. And in the early days, uh, for example, I went to Tocoa Falls College. Tocoa Falls College was founded by a man um, by the name of R.A. Forrest, who was the district superintendent of the southeastern district of the Christian Missionary Alliance, the president of an independent Bible college and the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. And it was not unusual to have those kinds of things in those days where uh, there was the Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening gathering uh, to hear the messages of the deeper life and to uh, talk about and, and support the work that God was doing around the world while people maintained their relationship with uh, other congregations. And so, one of the ways, one of the reasons why we came up with this crazy name, Christian and Missionary Alliance, in fact, it took us a while to convince the Yellow Pages that we were not Christian science, but it's Christian and Missionary Alliance. And the reason that we came up with that is because we were an alliance of people who were Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Independents and Pentecostals and whomever else God was bringing together around some very central uh, themes, most important of which the number one focus, Jesus Christ is everything. Uh, and in the early days, that was the, 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 the real drive and heartbeat to lift up and exalt Jesus Christ. I like to believe that it still is the thing that motivates us today. Some people are surprised and occasionally disturbed to find that we do not uh, embrace a particular theological position. In the Christian and Missionary Alliance, we have Calvinists and we have Arminians and we have people who are neither. Uh, we have Pentecostals. Uh, we have people who come from other uh, kind of denominational or traditional backgrounds because we define ourselves as being organized around some key essential truths that are true of all evangelicals, but highlighting the primacy of Jesus Christ as Savior, Sanctifier, and Healer and sharing Him with the world. So in the early days and even today, our Middle name is missions. Our goal was to take Christ and make him known where he had never been named. And so that missional focus was true from day one. And the secondary focus was to teach all believers everywhere that Jesus Christ alone is our all-sufficient one. That he is able to save He is also able to sanctify. It is not we who try to live good for God. 
It is God in Jesus Christ who lives through us according to His will and purposes. A very different kind of message than many Christian churches receive. And so He is our Savior. He is our sanctifier, the one who makes us holy. He is our healer. And He is the one who is coming again to plant His feet on this very earth and to uh, usher in His kingdom, which we will join in resurrected glory with Him, reigning and ruling here with Christ for a thousand literal years. These are things that we hold very true. Now, in the study of the seven core values, we covered um, pretty much the concept of Jesus Christ our Savior, And in our uh, lesson on the Holy Spirit, that core value, um, we talked about the, the central truth of Jesus Christ as our sanctifier in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But we have not covered in depth the, the idea that He is also our healer and He is our uh, soon coming King. So this morning, I want to begin uh, that first segment on Part three in the fourfold gospel, that was a term Simpson used for it. Uh, Jesus is our healer, and next week we're going to consider Jesus as our coming king. As in the case of the core values, uh, Dr. John Soper, recent past president of the Division of Church Ministries, um, has prepared a video lesson. Uh, I think he does an excellent job, and uh, I want to hear from him again this morning to present the the kernel of truth, and then I have some things that I want to share around it. Your outline kind of gives you the highlights of that, so you can uh, keep a record of that, and then we're going to conclude our service today with about a three-minute video testimony that will be a great blessing to you. Hello again. We want to continue today our study of the fourfold gospel by looking at the theme of Jesus Christ, our healer. If you've been attending an Alliance Church for any length of time now, one of the things that you've probably noticed is that very often people with physical needs ask for the elders to anoint them with oil. The reason we do that is because the Bible in the fifth chapter of the book of James tells us to. Is any of you in trouble, James asks? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. And I hope that you've also noticed that many times the ones who were anointed and prayed for are healed. There's a marvelous story in Acts chapter 3. Shortly after Pentecost, Peter and John go to the temple to worship. They're met there by a a man who's lame, lame from birth, a man who regularly begged for alms at the temple gate. Now, the beggar's expectation was that the apostles would give him money. But Peter's response was very different from what he was expecting. Peter says, we don't have any money, but we'll give you what we have. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he does. This man who was crippled from birth goes running and jumping and making a holy commotion in the temple. Everybody knows him. He's the lame lame man who's always there to beg. And now he's running and jumping and praising God. Now that got people's attention. It has a profound effect. 
And many people begin to believe in Jesus. Do you think things like that still happen now? They do. One Sunday, just after the service had concluded, a man I'd never seen before came and shook my hand. He told me that during the service he'd given his life back to Christ. He explained that many years before he'd made a profession of faith, but because of a series of difficult events in his life, a marriage breakup, a business failure, and some other things as well, he had walked away from the Lord. But that morning he returned. He gave his life again to the Lord. And then he asked if I would visit a friend who was seriously ill in the hospital. I agreed, and later that afternoon I found myself being gowned and masked and led into the highly infectious ward of the local hospital. The lady I'd gone to see was very sick. She had hepatitis B and had been told by the doctors that she would need to remain in the hospital for several weeks. Her complexion was orange because of the damage done to her liver by the disease. Her temperature was 104 degrees. She was really sick. I decided that I would make only a brief visit and come back at another time when she was feeling better. But she wouldn't let me go. I quickly discovered that she was the daughter of an Hasidic rabbi, the strictest sect of the Orthodox Jews. But she wanted to talk about the Bible. And in particular, about how I could be so sure that Jesus was really Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. I answered several questions. I read some Old Testament prophecies. And then because she was so sick, I told her that I had to leave. But I asked if I could pray. She said yes. So I simply asked God to help her to know that Jesus was really the Messiah. And I left. About an hour later, my telephone rang. There was a voice babbling almost incoherently on the other end of the line. And when I was finally able to get the facts, I learned that Almost as soon as I'd left that hospital room, a duty nurse making her hourly rounds on some of the most seriously ill patients came into the room. She saw that my new friend's complexion was no longer orange. Her temperature was 98.6 degrees. And when the resident doctor ordered a blood test, it showed no signs of any hepatitis or any other disease. I returned the next morning, and in nearly 40 years of ministry, I have rarely seen anyone come to Christ more quickly or more easily. Why? Because now she knew that Jesus was really the Messiah. And I knew that God is still in the business of healing people. Today there are just three truths that I want for us to understand. Number one, Jesus is still the healer. Now I know that some Christians have been taught otherwise. That miracles, including the miracles of healing, ended with the completion of the apostolic age. But there is no evidence in the New Testament to suggest that this ministry would ever cease. In fact, in John 14:12, Jesus told the disciples that they would do even greater things than he had done. And there's plenty of evidence, both historic and contemporary, that God is still a healing God who delights in meeting the physical as well as the spiritual needs of his people. Two, the power to heal comes from Jesus. This is very important. And I need for you to understand that we do not believe in faith healing. The power to heal comes not from our faith, though we are called upon to exercise faith in the person and the authority of Christ. The power to heal comes from Jesus himself. 
not from any man, or even from the faith that we have in him. Sometimes I hear about men and women who are described as faith healers. Even worse, sometimes they describe themselves that way. That is a very dangerous practice. Because it makes people think that the power belongs to them. It doesn't. It belongs to Jesus. Now, it ought to go without saying, then, that the power is never resident in any object or thing. If you buy into the idea of Indiana Jones crystal skulls or anything else like that, you have bought into an occult practice that has its roots with Satan and not with God. Third, the purpose of divine healing is to glorify Christ. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, the gospel stories contain many different accounts of people who were healed by Jesus. Have you ever wondered why he healed so many people? One reason was simply to get attention. Because when Jesus healed a blind man or raised a person from the dead, it got a lot of attention. Those miracles authenticated both the message and the messenger. But he also healed people to prove that he had the authority to forgive sin. The Pharisees in Jesus' day believed that if a sick person was healed, it was proof that God had forgiven their sin. Now, they also believed that all sickness was the result of sin. And you need to know that that's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Jesus believed. But given the Pharisees' belief, when Jesus healed a paralyzed man, that story is in Mark chapter 2, by saying, take up your mat and walk, that was proof of his authority to forgive sins. It was also a way of proving his claim to be God, because only God had the power to do what he was doing. He also healed to show his compassion. More than once, we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion. And then he healed a person with some great physical need. The healings also show that he was the Lord of life. He didn't come just to deal with our spiritual issues, but with our physical ones as well. He is the Lord of our whole lives. Finally, Jesus healed people to show that salvation starts now. The kingdom of God is coming, but it's also here right now. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. It started when we gave our lives to Christ. And the healings that occur here and now are a kind of down payment on the complete redemption that yet awaits us. One theologian has described it as the now but not yet aspect of salvation. We have something, but not yet everything that will be ours when Christ returns. Now, our time is almost gone, but there is a question that we absolutely have to talk about. It's the question about why everyone who prays for healing does not receive it in this life. We started today by noting that many people who receive prayer for healing get what they desire. But that also means that many others do not. Is it because God doesn't love them as much? Or because they don't have enough faith? And this is not an academic question. It is intensely personal, for me at least, because I was born with a birth defect. I have cerebral palsy. 
I didn't even learn to walk without braces for many years. And friends, though many others for whom I have prayed have been healed, and though I have also been healed from many other afflictions, I still have that birth defect. God hasn't taken it away. Why not? A part of the answer may rest in the now but not yet idea that we just talked about. But there's another thought, and it becomes clear when we go back to thinking about the purpose for which divine healing is given. It is always about the glory of Christ. Every healing, every act of divine mercy has as its primary purpose the goal of giving glory to God. The Bible teaches that there are many different reasons why a person can be sick. Uh, Your Bible study this week will help you to identify some of them. But there is only one main reason why people are healed. And that is so that God will be glorified. The Apostle Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. Three times he prayed and asked God to take it away. Each time God declined to answer that prayer in the way that Paul wanted. Instead, he told the Apostle, My strength is made perfect in weakness. He used that physical thing. We think from Paul's letter that it was probably a problem with his eyesight to teach Paul something that he couldn't learn in any other way and to demonstrate to others in the midst of Paul's weakness the strength and the glory of God. When we anoint the sick and pray for their healing, we often see God answer in dramatic ways. And the glory goes to him and to him alone. In those times when our prayers for healing are not answered, there's one thing that we can know for certain. That is the goal and the purpose of God's action, whether in giving or withholding healing, is always His glory. Sometimes it's only an issue of timing. Remember when Jesus showed up at the grave of Lazarus? Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, thought He was four days late. But he was right on time. Sometimes, as with the request for healing from the Apostle Paul, it's an issue of God having a better plan to bring glory to his name. But in the end, the bottom line is always this. God will do that which brings the greatest glory to the name of Jesus. Remember, it's all about Jesus. And as we listen to Dr. Soper this morning, there are a couple of uh, key concepts. I have a light, please. (laughs) I have trouble with my eyesight, too. I can't read in the dark. There are a couple of key concepts that uh, I want to uh, highlight for you that kind of stand out. Um, One of the things that he mentioned, and I, I bring this out very clearly because of what Jesus did on the cross, and that is the fact that sickness is directly related to sin. However, and the parentheses in your outline is very important, it is not necessarily a cause and effect relationship between the individual's sickness and their particular sin. You recall that the disciples asked a question of Jesus about a man who was born blind, and they said, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Uh, That question has always amazed me. Uh, 
part of it is, you know, I guess his parents uh, could have done something, but uh, that's kind of a bizarre way of looking at it, although that was their perspective. But the really crazy part is the man. Did he sin that he would be born blind? I mean, how does that happen before you're born? I don't know. But, uh, that, you know, they were assuming that since he was blind, there must be a problem, a sin problem in, in his life or his family. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, neither this man nor his parents. This blindness has nothing to do with anyone's sin. Now, he wasn't saying, obviously, that the man or his parents were sinless. What he was saying is there is not a cause and effect relationship between the problems in their life and this man's blindness. Those two are unrelated. And so we know from that specific passage and and others that support it that there is not necessarily a direct correlation between your sickness and your sin. But there is a correlation between sickness in the world and sin in the world. We are told very clearly in Scripture that the reason there is sickness and disease and death on this planet is because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and went their own way. When sin came into the world, death came as a consequence of sin and all of the preliminaries and other things that go with that that move us in that direction away from God. And so there is a direct relationship between sin and sickness. And on the cross, the Scripture says that Jesus bore our sin. But Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, relates it to Isaiah 53, which we recognize as a passage about the atonement in Isaiah. And in Matthew 8, as Jesus goes into the home of Peter and his mother is there, uh, and and mother-in-law, and she is sick, and Jesus touches her and heals her, and she gets up out of her sick bed and begins to uh, wait on the family. It says, as the day progressed, they brought those to Jesus who were possessed of demons and those who were sick, and Jesus cast out the demons and healed the ones, all of the ones who were brought there who were sick. And Matthew gives this explanation. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when it says, He Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses or our diseases. Looking forward to the cross, Matthew explained that the ministry of Jesus Christ in redemption is not only the the forgiveness of sin, but also the, the reclaiming, the restoration of the effects of sin, so that in the cross there is regeneration. There is uh, emotional and spiritual healing and sanctification, and there is physical healing ultimately resulting in resurrection. God is in the healing business. That's what He does. He heals. He restores The devil is the destroyer. God is the redeemer. The devil is the one who seeks to wreck our lives and bring us to ruin. God is the one who desires to restore our lives and bring us back to wholeness and to health. And as a consequence of that, it is at the cross 
that all of that converges. And in the atonement, as Jesus shed his blood, he makes possible for us to be healed. There's also kind of two aspects that stand out in Scripture of healing. In other words, two applications of the healing work of Christ. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, These are the signs that will follow those of you who believe as you go out into the world proclaiming the gospel. Um, Cast out demons and bring healing to the sick so that by these signs and wonders the gospel message will be authenticated. So often in our culture, we seek to persuade people to put their faith in Christ. We attempt to argue them, if you please, into the kingdom. We give them reasons to believe in Jesus, and then we give them reasons why what they've been believing is not accurate. And and we try, basically through our evangelism, to uh, give an intellectual reason for following Christ. And I'm afraid that oftentimes people make an intellectual decision rather than one that comes from the heart. In other countries around the world, evangelism is often carried out in a very different method. Because in many other countries of the world that are not as sophisticated as our Western mindset, they know that the devil has power. They may not know him as the devil or as Satan, but they know that they're... Uh, witch doctors, they know their shamans, they know their spiritual leaders are powerful figures and that spirits have power and they can make things happen. They can make people sick and they can make people well. And they're confident of this. They see it happen all the time. Um, I have uh, even uh, through the years had the opportunity to talk to very highly educated people from other countries of the world. And we have a tendency to think that uh, once a person gets educated, they get away from that craziness. But I have talked with people who are physicians and uh, PhDs and highly educated and very well trained in Western academics who still believe in the power of the spirit world and understand that this is very real and very much alive, and that we are the ones who are blind and ignorant to these realities. They are very much aware of the fact that this stuff is true. And so in those countries, when uh, the missionary attempts to evangelize, if the only equipment they have is an argument that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, you know, they kind of look at the missionary and say, well, so what? The spirits have the power to make me sick. And if I make them unhappy, my life is going to fall apart. And so, the only way to persuade those individuals is to demonstrate the power of God. And Paul said to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I did not come with persuasive words of man's wisdom. I did not come seeking to argue you into the kingdom, but I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith would not rest in the philosophies or arguments of men, but in the power of God. And in third world countries today, the, the effectiveness of the gospel ministry is frequently that which is accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles of healing when there is a practical demonstration that the power of God is greater than the 
the deities that they believe in. That He is the one true God who is over all and above all. It is a big thing for people in these countries to come and burn their fetishes and, and burn their idols and do away with their shrines and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because they know that the power of God has got to be greater than what they're turning their back on. Did you notice the sequence of events in the story that John Soper talked about in going to visit the woman in the hospital? She was the daughter of an Hasidic Jewish rabbi. She was not a Christian. She did not believe. He prayed for her and she was healed. The next morning, she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God many times desires to use healing as a means of awakening the person to His love, His compassion, and His power, and authenticating the gospel message. After which comes the faith to believe and be converted and born again. The other passage of Scripture that comes to mind, however, the other aspect of healing uh, in Matthew chapter 15, we read the story of a woman who is Canaanite or Syrophoenician, as some of your uh, Bibles say in the uh, older terminology. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came uh, out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Interesting passage. I think Jesus is putting kind of a test out here. And she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And yes, and she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, the, pat, the phrase I want to lift out of that fascinating story, and Jesus had compassion on her, but the phrase is, the children's bread. Healing is also not simply as a demonstration of the power of God, but as the privilege of those who are followers of Jesus Christ for His children. It is the children's bread. And He offers healing to the church and through the church as a ministry of His presence and His compassion because He has already paid the price for our sin. It is the privilege of every believer who is sick to ask God uh, to heal them. And it is their responsibility, your responsibility, to take the initiative. You know, I will tell you very honestly, you will never find me showing up in your hospital room or on your doorstep with a bottle of oil asking if I can anoint you. And the reason for that is because the Scripture says in James chapter 5, Is there any sick among you? Let that one call for the elders of the church. Now, I may come and pray for you and come to encourage you and, and come to, uh, to just visit with you. 
But I am not going to push on you the anointing with oil and the prayer for healing. And the reason is because there is a transaction that needs to go on between you and God when you're sick. Or when your child is sick. Ron reminded me in the first service, what about children uh, whose parents, you know, uh, how, do, how do they express that desire? And depending on their age, they either become a participant with their parents or if they're very, very young, the parents need to bring them. But the transaction with God needs to begin with the one who is sick. And there's one thing that I really want to underscore in the process of this, and that is that Jesus Christ is our doctor. He's our healer. Even in the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they came to the waters of Marah, which were bitter, And God showed them a a tree, and they cut that and threw the the tree, the branch, into the waters of Marah, and they became sweet, and they were able to drink from them. And it was there that God revealed another aspect of His character and His name when He said, I am the Lord your God, your doctor, which heals you. And if you follow Me and obey Me, I will put none of these diseases upon you that have fallen upon the other nations. Jesus Christ is our doctor. And what is it that doctors do? Well, doctors diagnose. And they listen to your symptoms. And they evaluate the clinical signs. And they attempt to take the signs and symptoms and bring them together to formulate an understanding of some disease process that's going on so they will know how to offer the prescription that can potentially make you well. But doctors don't really know why you're sick. They may know what you're sick with. They may come to that conclusion, but they don't know why. For example, if you go to the doctor and you say, my throat is sore, in fact, it's really sore, it hurts like crazy, and I've got this temperature and whatever, and they do a swab and they culture it and they say, ah, you have strep throat and I'm going to give you this antibiotic and it's going to kill that bacteria in there and you're going to get better well the truth is every single one of us sitting here this morning hope it don't gross you out but you all have strep in your mouth every one of you here this morning has strep in your mouth and and you have staph on your skin but it's not affecting you Because your immune system is working to constantly keep it at the right balance and it's not taking over. The doctor doesn't know why things broke down and you became susceptible. He just knows what you have. Jesus knows why you have it. And he is the only one who can tell you why you have it. So, now, I can't tell you that every time you ask, he's going to explain it all to you in detail, but this I know, the only one who knows me cell by cell, molecule by molecule, system by system, is my Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only doctor that knows before I ask what's wrong with me. 
He is the only one that knows how I got where I got. He is the only one that knows the way out. He is the only one that knows what he will do. And so you as the sick person need to begin the transaction with God. You need to ask him. You need to talk to him. You need to pursue the Lord. Because sickness can always be a springboard in our life. Not only to God's glory, but to our own wholeness in the far greater dimension than merely physical healing. And so, you have to believe that God is able to heal, that He is willing to heal, and that He is the doctor. And you begin that conversation with Him. And when you are at the point in your conversation with God, or you're at the point where you're ready to call for the elders, then you need to come to the church and call for the elders. And if you can't come to the church, you need to pick up the phone and initiate that phone call and say, will you come to my house? Will you come to my hospital room? Will you bring the oil and bring the church and bring the elders and will you pray for me? And the oil doesn't have any power. <laughs> it's merely the symbol that if the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ up from the dead dwells in us, He will also give life to our mortal bodies. We also need to be open to God's timing and God's purposes. And we need to be open to God's will. What does He want to do with me? I don't want to sound uh, tacky here or, or cheap in any way. Because if you're suffering, you're suffering and it hurts. But many times people want to get better so they can go and do as they please again. They are inconvenienced by their disease, and they want to be feeling better and having more energy and strength so they can go back to living for themselves the way they have been. God is really very interested in you living for Him. He's very interested in you being sold out to Him. And a part of the process for the believer is coming to the place where we recognize that if the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me, ah, I am His temple. I am the container of God in this life. I am the vessel. He is living in me. And my purpose here is to manifest His glory and to manifest His purposes and to accomplish His will. Intimacy with God develops when we are in tune with His direction and goals for our life. And our desire ultimately has to come down to, Lord, I want to be healed to bring glory to You and to be available for Your service, whatever it is that You want to do in my life. Let me share just a word of testimony with you. I have had the experience that John Soper describes of going to the hospital and praying for people who were very sick. And within that very day, seeing the miracle occur of healing that is documentable by laboratory results. And it's really an amazing and marvelous thing when you see God act in that way. Also, like 
uh, John Soper, I have seen God's powerful healing in my life, in my own body. And like him as well, I have some issues that still hang on that God hasn't taken away at this point. And uh, there is a certain amount of mystery there. One of the things that has uh, been kind of uh, amazing to me, and I've seen this happen in smaller increments throughout my life, um, I very, very seldom in all the years of ministry have called at the last minute sick on a Sunday morning and asked someone else to preach. That doesn't mean I'm not sick on a Sunday morning, but what I've learned is if I show up, God shows up. And I've learned not to let the way I feel get in the way of my obedience. If God has given me a word to bring, then He will bring that word. And uh, sometimes I get up and I don't feel very good, or I'm even frankly sick. And uh, I come anyway. And I come with the intention of allowing God to do His will, and I've seen Him uh, work through me in the preaching, I don't have so many migraines as I used to, but I suffered from those for a number of years, and sometimes I'd wake up on a Sunday with a migraine and think, man, I can't even walk straight or see straight. How am I going to preach? Only to discover that as I stood to preach, God just brought this uh, supernatural covering that took away the pain and the distraction, and I was able to preach. And then sometimes to my chagrin, and I don't know if there's any humor in it, but the headache would return about the time I got back home. And it was like, it was this oasis, you know, uh, of the time. But I've learned to trust God for that. Similarly, uh, a number of years ago, well, it was uh, when I first got married, um, I was working in a grocery store, and I realized that uh, I was not going to be able to make the kind of money that we needed Uh, working in a grocery store, and there was a job in construction open, and I had done a little bit of that, but I hadn't uh, done a lot because of my back problems. My back problems were actually discovered when I was 12 years old. It's been kind of a childhood thing. I was born with a deformity in my spine. And uh, when I had heart surgery at the age of 12, that's when they found out I had back problems. Because in those days, they kept you in bed for a week. I mean, in bed for a week. They didn't let you get out of bed for a week. Now they know better than to do silly things like that. But uh, the longer I laid in bed, the, the worse my back became. I'm 12 years old, and I'm one of the few people that are pleading for some kind of mattress or orthopedic support for my back because I'm dying from back pain. My chest was not hurting as much as my back by the end of the week. And so that was kind of things, something that had followed me all along until... Uh, I realized I needed uh, to uh, earn more money in a different area. And I was sitting in church one day when God very, very clearly spoke to me and said, if you will go forward, I will heal your back and give you a job in construction. And I believed the Lord, and I went forward and asked for healing, asked for prayer. And God touched me in that moment, and my back was healed. And I was able to work the next uh, several years all the way through college. I was able to work in construction, uh, carrying blocks, uh, carrying decking up on roofs, framing and footings, and all the things that are involved in building. And uh, was able to do that without any uh, back problems uh, 
interestingly enough, as the years have gone on and I didn't have to do construction anymore, uh, you know, the degenerative uh, disease has come back and I struggle with that. But I still find that I'm able to do the things that God calls me to do. And uh, I don't know, but what he's not going to take that away again. I've been reading and studying and praying this summer about this whole ministry of divine healing. One of the most uh, significant things that happened to me was in 1993, I developed something in my shoulder that was painful but also limited the use of my muscles. And within a relatively short period of time, I found that uh, my whole body was uh, suffering weakness and uh, fasciculations, which are twitching in the muscles, and cramping. Everything cramped. Every move I made or direction, uh, I bent in. Uh, something locked up on me. And uh, the weakness developed to the point that I was not able to, to drive very far. If I left the McHenry area, I had to have someone go with me because they didn't have the strength to constantly go from the gas to the brake and, and effectively drive the car. Started going for testing. I went through a number of MRIs to find out what was wrong. And they said, well, you got this disc and that disc and you got all this stuff going on. And um, I went up to, uh, to Freightert and saw a spinal cord surgeon at Freightert Hospital. And uh, he looked at my uh, MRIs and my x-rays and he looked at my back and he said, we need to do surgery. We need to do fusion in your neck. And when we're done with that, then I need to, to do uh, surgery in your lumbar area. We need to probably put a cage in. And uh, if you don't let me do this surgery, you're going to be in a wheelchair in about uh, three years. You won't be able to walk anymore. And um, that was 1994-95 by the time we got to that point. I had been to a specialist at another university who had done head-to-toe EMG examination, and my neurologist had finally put in his notes, if we cannot find any other reason for this, we have to consider ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. I refused to have the spine surgery because I could not get that doctor or anyone else to explain why my facial muscles twitched and why I had cramping in my face and difficulty swallowing. And for those of you that are somewhat savvy anatomically, you know that none of the spinal nerves innervate the face. And I said, until you can prove to me that what's going on in the rest of my body is, is not related to what's going on in my face, I'm not going to have all this surgery done and, and then die of Lou Gehrig's disease within a couple of years. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so it was a time when we had no idea what was going to go on and presented ourselves and myself to the Lord and said, God, I'm yours. I'm in your hands. What do you want to do? Over time, healing came. Strength returned to my muscles. The pains and cramping subsided to a great extent. The fasciculations that were annoying me all day long uh, largely have stopped. I won't say they're 100% gone. But I'm 20 years down the road, I'm not in a wheelchair, and they finally said, well, you must not have had Lou Gehrig's because you're still alive, but the truth is, no one ever really knows what was going on with me. The fact is, God 
undertook and touched me. I also want to share just a word to you parents. Uh, there was uh, a time when uh, we had quite a few emergency room visits when Jonathan was younger and learned that he had a condition called tracheal stenosis, subglottic stenosis, which is a closing of the trachea. Uh, it was a kind of a birth issue. And uh, we were scheduled at Children's Hospital to have some very, very major and very serious surgery done. It was going to require being in intensive care for 10 days on a ventilator and um, grafting material into the trachea and all of these kinds of things. And we were God on that. And uh, then we asked the elders to come and pray. And there were waiting that we met for prayer and asked God to bring healing. The next morning, sick. We went to Children's and they listened to his lungs and says, "We can't do any surgery on him. Congestion in his lungs. You take him home and bring him back in a week." And so uh, we were supposed to go back a week later, and God very clearly said to me, "Emergency room and ask one of the doctors to order an X-ray." I had been working in the room, and I knew the doctors there, so I went and uh, persuaded uh, Dr. Havhab to, 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 he didn't want to do it. He said, this is pointless, and yada, yada, and, you know, I said, just humor, order an x-ray, I want to see the trachea. Some of you who were there then remember that I put that on the overhead projector and showed the original x-ray and the one that prayer for healing, that x-ray showed that the trachea had enlarged twice the to normal. There has never been surgery. And God effected power. And we still have those x-ray films that show the subglottic stenosis with the... Sometimes it's... And that's why I said to you a bit ago... You have to talk to Jesus. You have to get before Him. and He is your doctor. And uh, when we say, well, there's nothing left to do but pray, right, right, right. That, that makes me shudder when believers tell me that. Because that's the first Doctor, go to a doctor. But start with prayer. Go to the chief surgeon and ask him for his counsel. Find out what he wants to do and wait before him. And it may surprise you what the Lord desires to do for you. Well, I know we've gone way over, but this is only three minutes. And um, I started to say, I promise I won't do this again, but I will. So there's no point in saying that. But uh, let's watch this testimony and the conclusion of our service this morning. It's called uh, Rise and Walk. Yep. Supplemental video. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who was there had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. My name is Shakia Burton, and I am a sophomore in Nyack College. I got cerebral palsy by being premature. I weighed one pound and 15 ounces. Because of my premature birth, I had complications. 
my mother noticed that I wasn't able to hold myself up at a certain age. She said that I wasn't responding, like looking at her. I didn't start walking until I was about two or three. I used to crawl everywhere, and even when I crawled, I used to drag myself. Playing in the playground was difficult because I really couldn't move like the other kids. And we would play tag, and I always used to get caught, you know? So, um, yeah. I didn't like to be around people. I love people, but I didn't like to walk in front of people. And if I was to walk in a room and it would be laughter, they could be laughing about something else, but I thought it was me. I wasn't mad at God. I wasn't mad at him. I just wanted to know why he made me like that. And then I started to think, well, okay, he made me like this for a reason. So I'm like, I'm gonna stop questioning it. But it was still in the back of my mind. Like, Lord, are you gonna heal me? Am I gonna be 25 with this? You know, will I be able to have children? During November, my freshman year, I attended a healing service and Ron Wilborn was the speaker. When it comes to healing, when somebody speaks about healing, I'm very sensitive because, you know, that's what I always wanted. My church used to have healing um, lines all the time and I used to get up and go and I used to sit back down the same. So I went, I sat in the middle of Partington and I listened to the sermon. He doesn't know to call and people started to move. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna get up and go. And they asked what you wanted prayer for. And I said, okay, you know, pray for my grandmother because she's sick. I didn't even bother to ask for myself because I figured that, you know, God is not gonna heal me, so I'm not even gonna ask. So they prayed for my grandmother. And then Rebecca started praying for me. And Chris came over and he got on his knees and he laid hands on my knees and they were praying. And I was like, no, I'm okay, I don't want it, I'm okay, I'm okay. But, you know, I was crying in my tissues because that's something that deep down in my heart I really wanted. All of a sudden they said this was shift and I, I felt it, like I felt, my, you know, my back straight, straighten up. And she looked down at Chris, she was like, did you see it? He was like, yeah, I saw it. They told me, okay, now you open your eyes, let's walk. And I'm like, no, I don't want to move. And it's like, why? It's like, because I'm scared. They let my hand go and I stopped in the middle of the aisle and I felt my back. And when I felt my back, that's when it hit me, like, <laughs> I was healed. And I felt my legs, and I had pulled up my pants legs, and I looked at my knees, and they were straight. And I just started screaming. I couldn't sleep that night. <laughs> when I woke up the next morning, I was still healed. It wasn't a dream. Like, I woke up, I jumped out of bed. I was jumping all over the place, climbing on things, looking in the mirror just to make sure that it was really straight, and it was straight. Like, now that I look back, I want to hear it for all the love we do. It wasn't about giving God the glory. It was about, Lord, fix me so I can feel good. So I won't have to hide. So I won't have to be made fun of. Fix me so I'll be able to walk like everybody else and do the things like everybody else. And he's like, 
said, oh, I don't want to do it like that. I want to do it so my son can get some glory out of it. For people who say that, you know, you can't be healed from cerebral palsy, it's not possible, then they don't understand the power of my God. Because God can do anything. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. 